Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. David Jolly says the Republican Party that he knew is gone. The former U.S. representative from Tampa Bay left the Republican Party and registered as NPA, or No Party Affiliation, four years ago. Today, he says his former party and the country face unique and dangerous challenges. Ahead on Florida Matters, we'll talk with Jolly about those challenges and about the future of bipartisan politics. First, though, researchers are still measuring the impact of Hurricane Ian on Florida's waterways. Satellite photos taken before and after the storm show a dramatic change in the water quality off the Gulf Coast. David Tomasco, executive director of the Sarasota Bay Estuary Program, says the hurricane dumped masses of vegetation into the Peace River, while millions of gallons of wastewater overwhelmed treatment plants. Tomasco tells me Hurricane Charlie, which took a similar track across the state in 2004, gave him some idea of what to expect from Ian. We actually have practice in, you know, looking at the effects of hurricanes on on water quality and our natural resources. And what we saw in Charlie was like widespread defoliation. In other words, all the vegetation knocked off the trees, washed down with the rains into the river, uh, caused like almost 100 miles of the Peace River to go anoxic. So no oxygen in it because it's functioning like an underwater compost heap. Um, so we kind of thought that something similar would happen. So we were prepared for starting a, a water quality monitoring program. And we did. We're out on the water less than a week after Ian came through. And we did see that. We saw like massive amounts of uh, vegetation blown off the trees, rain down into the creeks, coming into our bays. And we had um, basically like this uh, underwater compost heap. But we also had a lot of other things going on. We had uh, several tens of millions of gallons of wastewater overflows occurring in Mantee and Sarasota counties. We had lift station failures. We had uh, uh, manholes, one of them five blocks from my house that were just, you know, blowing out uh, wastewater into the streets. So we had this kind of like natural defoliation, a lot of material. We had wastewater. We also had uh, particularly in, in a place with uh, a lot of septic tanks, the water table is too high for them to function correctly. So uh, septic tank effluent not being treated correctly. Uh, and then you have all the urban stormwater runoff, all the grass clippings and dog poop and, and like submerged vehicles. So it was just a mess, a huge amount of pollutant loads added to our uh, creeks and rivers and bays and Gulf of Mexico. We found freshwater vegetation two miles offshore out in the Gulf of Mexico. It's still alive, still growing. Wow. Because of the massive amount of fresh water that brought it into this, into our local waters. Let me just go back to the Peace River for a moment, because that is a river that is, it's flooded after the hurricane and it's caused lots of problems for residents further inland, right? Yeah. And if you go back to Hurricane Charlie and you were talking about, what is it called? Anoxia? Yeah. So lack of oxygen in the water. Are, are you seeing the same thing after Hurricane Ian? Yes, we're, we're seeing, uh, it's not perhaps as far up. But it, one of the difficult things about figuring out just how uh, extensive the water quality problems are in the Peace River is that uh, there are a lot of sites that we can't sample. And when I mean we, I mean the Water Management District, 
uh, local governments, contractors, private consulting firms, private laboratories. And one of the problems is we can't get to all these spots because, you know, US 17 was uh, basically blown out in a couple of places. A couple of the bridges were basically underwater. So but what we are seeing is it, it looks similar to what we had in 2004, which is just massive amounts of material washed into these uh, rivers. It decomposes, uses up all the oxygen. When it uses up all the oxygen, then basically the fish that are in the river, most of them are going to die. And then that adds to your problems. That's more oxygen demand. That's more bacteria. So our initial concerns were, yeah, there's a lot of problems with oxygen. There's a lot of problems with nutrients. We caused algal blooms. But our initial concerns was our bacteria levels were just sky high across a large stretch of southwest Florida. And so all of that water is going to end up in the bay at some point, right? So that means you're going to have issues in the bay downstream. Yeah, one of the things that happened, it was so much rainfall. It was much more rainfall than Charlie. And so we had so much rainfall that it actually formed a layer of fresh water on the top of the lower portion of Sarasota Bay. So it's basically fresh water to brackish water in the top, say, three to five feet. And then underneath it was a saltier water that represents the typical bay water. And that causes what we call salinity stratification. And that isolates that lower water mass. Uh, the lower water is not mixing with the air, so it doesn't get oxygen from the air. It's too dark for it to have enough light for things to grow and photosynthesize. So the harbor and Sarasota Bay, Charlotte Harbor and Sarasota Bay had this salinity stratification hypoxia problem, which causes big fish to move out and small fish and things that live on the bottom of the bay. If they can't handle low oxygen for you know a week or two, they're just going to die in mass. And that's what we saw uh, in this system. What does all this mean for like swimming in the waterways, fishing, other kinds of recreation? Is the message at the moment just don't do it until things clean up a bit or is it getting better? The farther north you are, the better off you're, you're going to be. So, I mean, would I go to swimming in a beach in Pinellas County? Absolutely. I mean, I was in the water this weekend, but farther to the south, uh, we're not quite sure it's safe yet. So we're seeing really high levels of bacteria the closer you get to where the landfall was. So until the data come back a couple of rounds of really low levels, I wouldn't go in the water. So I'll go in the water in, in Tampa Bay and on the Gulf beaches, no problem at all. But I won't go in the water in Lemon Bay and Charlotte Harbor until I see consistently low values of bacteria. And we just don't have that yet. So what are the challenges for the next few months and what are your priorities going to be, David? Well, it depends on, you know, everything that happens now. So this is a little bit like Piney Point. It's hard to predict what's going to happen because we've not really gone through something exactly like this. If our water temperature is cool and we don't get any more rain, and we have a couple of like strong tides with full moons and new moons, maybe it's not going to be too bad. But at the same time, we know that healthy systems can handle hurricanes a lot better than stress systems. So the way I kind of look at it, this is another experience to learn from, which is healthy bays are going to be more resilient to hurricanes and they're going to be less of a problem when a red tide comes around. If you don't take care of your water quality, you're going to have a bad bay <laughs> all the time. And when you have a red tide, it'll probably be a worse red tide. And when you have a hurricane, it'll probably have a bigger impact. So uh, one lesson we can learn from this is take care of your water quality Get your nutrient loads under control. Get more filter feeders. You know, mangroves are your friend. Stop treating them like garbage. 
And if we do all that, then we're going to be able to better handle the kind of storms because this was not a one in 500 year event. Uh, we don't have 500 years of rainfall data. We got about 100 years of rainfall data. This is the kind of storm that has been much more frequent over the last 20 to 40 years than the prior 100 years. David Tomasco is the executive director of the Sarasota Bay Estuary Program. David, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. You're listening to Florida Matters. Still to come, former Tampa Bay Congressman David Jolly on the challenges facing the Republican Party and the future of bipartisanship and democracy in the United States. That's when we return. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. Former Tampa Bay Congressman David Jolly left the Republican Party and registered as NPA or No Party Affiliation back in 2018. Since his time in Congress, Jolly has teamed up with former Democratic Congressman Patrick Murphy to shine a light on partisan gridlock. He's also entertained the idea of running for governor of Florida and helped launch a new political party with 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang and former Republican New Jersey Governor Christine Todd Whitman, the Forward Party. Jolly says he became uncomfortable with the direction of the Republican Party after the emergence of the Tea Party in 2010 and with racist undertones in the way President Obama was challenged during his presidency. Now, he says gerrymandering and attempts to disenfranchise voters are setting the country on a dangerous trajectory. Well, David Jolly is an attorney and former U.S. representative from the Tampa Bay area. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, good to be with you, Matthew. So back in 2017, you and former Democratic Congressman Patrick Murphy teamed up to talk about gridlock and dysfunction in D.C., and you even collaborated with him for a book about it, A Divided Union. Looking at things now in Washington, D.C., how would you say things are? Is it more or less divided? (laughs) I I think we could all answer that exactly the same way. Look, these structural issues... I would say there's good and bad. In some states across the country, we have seen efforts at reforming some of the structural issues that incentivize partisan behavior, Um, right? For instance, the movement towards ranked choice voting or open primaries, those are all electoral reforms that try to incentivize more bipartisan behavior, more consensus-driven governing by our elected officials. Hmm. Um, So there are some bright spots, uh, but there also are some dark spots where we have seen states try to reduce the ability for people to vote and have their vote counted. We have seen, for instance, in the state of Florida, voters in Sarasota wanted ranked choice voting, approved it by referendum, but our governor and legislature in Tallahassee preempted that and prohibited the voters in in Sarasota from doing that. So those are some dark spots, but those are on the structural side, Matthew. I think there's also a cultural question, which is, has the behavior of our elected officials and candidates become more or less divisive? And I think it, in most cases, it's clear it's become more divisive, as has our personal politics, as we continue to reward a more divisive brand of politics. I, I am simply just not wired that way as a politician or a person, really, which is why I have enjoyed being an, an NPA in the state of Florida, a no-party affiliate independent now for about four years. I absolutely love this space. Some of your former colleagues in the Republican Party who've also left the party because of dissatisfaction have gone over to the other side and become Democrats. Is that something that you've thought about or have people asked you to do that? Of course, I thought about it. I believe personally, and I know there's a variety of opinion on this, but I believe the challenges within today's Republican Party 
are unique challenges and dangerous ones for the future of the party, but ultimately the future of the country. There are a different set of challenges within the Democratic Party that exist in most minor and major parties. Fundamentally, parties have a way of crushing independent thought, right? If you sign up for a political party, you are signing up for a grocery list of ideological positions, and you're not allowed to sway from those. And so I would suggest the reason that I have not joined any other party much less a Democratic Party. The default seems to think if you leave the Republican Party, will you join the Democratic Party? But the reason I haven't joined any other party is, you know, my own politics are left, right, and middle. It's not as though I was a conservative and became a progressive. Even within the Republican Party, I supported marriage equality and climate science and gun reforms and a number of issues that didn't fit within the Republican Party. But I was a traditional lower tax, less regulation conservative, if you will. Well, if I were to join today's Democratic Party, I could exercise my politics around marriage equality and climate and guns, but I would not be allowed to exercise my politics around lower taxes and less regulation because that's simply not where that party is today. That is the struggle. That is all, honestly my belief of why you see 40% of Floridians register as independents because they can't see themselves fully within the tent of any one party's dogma. They want to exercise their own independent thought. And, and that is why I have so enjoyed this time in the independent space. It's a celebration of independent thought and diversity of thought that ultimately, if we can thread together some shared values of just using, using the best answers and the brightest minds, wherever they are on the spectrum, to solve the nation's hardest problems, that's how we move the country forward. It's one thing to celebrate the feeling of you know, having your your ideas be able to be validated in that space, but it's another thing to actually get things done politically, right? And if the party structure is su such that even if there are a lot of NPAs in the state of Florida or in, in the country as a whole, unless, you know, somebody can get elected and put some of those policies in place, we're still faced with either red or blue and nothing much in the middle. Here's the other reason that I, I would be a critic of the two major parties in, in much the same way, and that is around, they have largely agreed to protect the system from any new entrance. What I mean by that is, particularly in within the Washington infrastructure, the two sides have agreed to set up a, a very complex set of parameters that make it incredibly difficult for the viability of, of a new party entrance. So here's a good example using Florida numbers. When we register to vote as Floridians, on any given day, we, we go down and we register. We are presented with what I call choices in equity, right? It's a piece of paper that says, please identify your personal politics. They're all the same when you register. R, D, I, Green, Libertarian. Tell us who you feel you are in the political space. You're not being asked to vote for somebody when you register. You're just being asked, where do you think your politics best fit? And in Florida, we break down a third, a third, a third, basically. A third of Floridians, when they register, say, I'm independent. I'm not associated with these two parties. But then you go to the first Tuesday in November on election day, and we self-select 50-50. Well, why is that? It's not because Floridians feel different on election day than when they registered. It's because they're only presented with two choices. You're only presented with two viable choices on election day, and therefore we're forced to self-select either as red or blue. Imagine a Florida in which we were presented with three, four, five viable competitive candidates 
I think we would self-select like we do when we register to vote. And we would have more competitive politics in Florida, but more importantly, we will have changed the incentive structure for candidates to actually try to give voice to more people than the ones they take for granted. Have you considered moving to a country like New Zealand where they have mixed member proportional representation so you can't actually vote for somebody who aligns with your beliefs? Matthew, I'm glad you bring that up because the United States is an outlier among Western democracies and and other governments and that we have this two-party system. Most democracies across the world actually have multi-party democracy where you have three, four, five different competitive parties. You have some type of coalition that has to be used to get to a majority vote, not just a a plurality vote. And then you have a very open electioneering system. We really don't. I mean, we we are taking the oxygen out of our election system. And I'll give you a good example. There's There's a municipality in the Tampa Bay area where I believe this is still the case. It was a year or two ago, where of the five council members, none of them received more than 50% of the vote. Two members of the council were elected with votes in the 20% range. Nothing about that suggests majority rules and majority governing. I want to talk more about the Republican Party and sort of where it is compared to where it was when you were a Republican. But I want to come back to, for a moment, your former opponent across the aisle, Patrick Murphy, and your collaborator thereafter. Both of you toyed with running for governor or lieutenant governor, governor and lieutenant governor, I should say, on a bipartisan ticket. And you were also yourself reported to be considering running as an independent for governor in 2022. Are you still interested in running for political office? And for example, would you be interested in running for the seat that Charlie Crist is vacating to run for governor? I'm truly in the never say never camp, not out of uh, political speak or being cynical, just that I've tried to quit politics three times and it draws me back in. (laughs) So I'd be I'd be being dishonest if I suggested it's not something I've thought about. What I will tell you is I don't wake up with a plan to how to run for office. I'm just not wired that way. We have a three year old and one year old at home, and this is the best chapter of my entire life. So the idea of missing time with my kids would be a, a great disincentive. Here's the important thing about what Patrick and I examined in 18 and then what I examined in 2022. And, and listen, I, I helped what we call unity tickets, where you put an R and a D on the same ballot. We tried that in the state of New York for governor and lieutenant governor. We tried it in Connecticut for governor and lieutenant governor. And in Connecticut, it really resonated. We got to the high teens in the polls before the major parties came in and just crushed us with spending. With the 2018 consideration by Patrick and I, it was a little late in the game and ultimately the money just wasn't there to be competitive. Uh, So we never had the opportunity to kind of test a unity ticket in Florida. For the 2022 consideration, I did strongly consider running against Ron DeSantis for governor as an independent. Our extensive polling showed a ceiling of about 25%, which in a three-way race, if you do the math, isn't enough. It, It doesn't get you there. And here's the important thing about that 25%, though. That assumes that by election day, Jolly is an independent, DeSantis is a Republican, and let's say Chris now is a Democrat, could have all equally gotten their message in front of the, the Florida voters. Well, we know that's not the case. I don't have, I don't come from money. I couldn't self-fund, and I wasn't going to be able to raise $200 million. And so the, as an independent, I would not have been able to get my message out like the other two main party candidates were. So that 25% likely never would have happened. Do you think that's what it costs to run a gubernatorial campaign in Florida now, 200 million bucks? I think $100 million is the better figure. Ron DeSantis has just been this 
fundraising behemoth. I mean, he has shattered all records. And so I think it's fascinating to watch actually how he's holding back some of his money because he knows he doesn't need it all. He has too much money this cycle. And, and obviously he'll try to repurpose that towards presidential purposes the day after election day, should he be reelected. Let me just come back to this idea of bipartisanship, sort of where the state of Florida is going, what the voters are doing. There's been quite a bit of reporting on how red zip codes are becoming redder and blue zip codes are getting more blue across the country. And in Florida, for example, you find cities tend to vote Democrat, rural areas trend red. Is this just another example of political polarization? And what does that mean for the future of people like you who want to see more collaboration across the aisles? There have been a number of studies, you're right to point to, on how we kind of self-segregate around these cultural and political similarities, and it creates a divided country. You know, it used to be our culture informed our politics, but now our politics inform our culture. And perhaps that's because we're 20 years into the information age. Uh, Perhaps it's because we have leaders that continue to try to divide us. The concern about neighbor versus neighbor and the divisions there are important cultural ones that I, I think we could have a lot of opinions and broad conversation on. What I'm fascinated by, though, in a world in which we self segregate, is what then becomes the role of the administrators of district lines? So, in Florida, where the legislature and the governor get to draw lines, should they empower those segregated communities? Should they try to break them up to make them more competitive, to make, uh, to make it an arena of more competitive voices? Or should they be allowed to manipulate it strictly for partisan purposes? And we're decades into the, the very latter of that. And the courts have blessed that, that you can draw for partisan lines. And I think that's where you end up in, in our politics, just really poisoning some of, you know, the political electioneering poisoning some of our community voices and community representation. The the district that I represented, I went through exactly what Charlie's gone through. It it was redrawn, I believe, three different times in my three years in office and always outside of my control. What I would love to see, not everybody agrees with this, but if you wanted to fix politics tomorrow, first of all, in gerrymandering, but more importantly, as you redraw the lines, you know, in Florida, we said we passed a constitutional amendment that said we want fair districts and fair should be defined by geographic compactness. Right? We want to try to keep communities together. What if a fair district was one that was created to to be a swing district? Right. My old Pinellas County district for years was a swing district. And then following the fair districts amendment, because of the geographic compactness requirement, it swung to a district that Obama won by, I believe, 10 points, that ultimately Charlie uh, won in our 16 race against each other. That's fine. I, I, you know, I didn't challenge the Fair Districts Amendment. I, I stayed silent on the whole thing. It was the will of the voters. But I would love to see a world in which every member of Congress had to, had to truly run to keep their seat. And, and if they didn't perform well, there was a mechanism for voters to vote them out because now you are in a competitive district. Do you think people want that? Like, I've also read some reporting that people are moving in some cases to places where they feel like their political beliefs, you know, align with whatever leadership they have there. It depends on the challenge you're willing to take. I recognize that not everybody would agree with my position. If you, would, if you want a government that's more responsive, but more importantly, give voters the ability 
right? Our, our frustration often with government is that we feel there's nothing we can do, right? You can't, for instance, I, I have grave disagreements with what Governor DeSantis did with the migrants in Texas and shipping them to Massachusetts, but there's nothing I can do. What, what can I do about that as a voter? Because he doesn't have to listen to me. Our frustration with government is that we have elected officials that don't have to listen to you because there's no threat to their reelection because the system is rigged to protect their incumbency. So that, that that's a that's a pretty bleak message, though, David. Are you saying are you saying there's no point in voting for people who don't agree with, say, the likes of what Governor DeSantis is doing? No, we have to because the day we the day we quiet our voices, we've given up. You know, I trust me in the in the what was the never Trump camp and then the disaffected Republican camp and now those of who have left, it feels like a losing cause. But the day we go quiet, we've lost. That's where I would suggest a number of electoral reforms could really fix this. And and they're within reach, right? The Fair Districts Amendment in Florida was done because enough voters with the backing of, of some financiers were able to say, we want to change how our district lines are drawn. That was a voter-led initiative. Right. On that note, though, on the idea of voter-led initiatives, uh, you know, referenda and the like, those barriers to entry or the rules for getting something done or getting something changed there are changing, right? I mean, it's becoming harder or the there are efforts to make it harder for voters to initiate these ideas and, and get something done from the voters' point of view. It is. And certainly in Florida, they continued to raise signature requirements. Frankly, most signature campaigns now are done by hiring a signature firm that, that roughly costs 10 to $15 per signature. So that's a lot of money. Um, so they are making it harder. And as I mentioned, in the case of, of Florida, the governor has preempted enactment of some of these reforms. What happened in Sarasota? Sarasota voters said, in only our municipality, we want to use ranked choice voting. They approved it. And yet the governor preempted it and said, sorry, voters, I'm not going to let you do that. I want to just come back to something you mentioned at the top of our conversation and your thoughts on whether or not to get back into politics. And you mentioned you have, you have a three-year-old and a one-year-old right now. When you think about the world that they are going to inherit, you know, Florida, the United States, what what kind of keeps you up at night? Like when you think about the way things are going politically, what sort of legacy do you want to leave for them? This is very personal for me, um, as it is for many people. And the hesitation you hear is because of a concern. I The concern I have is over their safety in schools and the issue of gun violence. And enrolling them in a school in America where I'm introducing them to the most dangerous environment that they have yet to encounter. Consider that. we, My wife and I protect them as young children. And for the first time, I'm understanding the fear now of dropping them off at the schoolhouse. And the fact that in Florida and in the country, we haven't solved that and we don't have the conviction to fix that for the first time in my life, I have actually gone to Google and done research on the safest places to raise children around the world, not in the United States, around the world. And, and that question on my mind is not over our divided politics. It's not over tax code. It's over whether or not, as a parent, I can keep my kids safe in an American school. And it's a remarkable failure of the world's leading democracy, which goes then ultimately to this question of why why do we have elected officials out of step with where the majority of Americans are on the issue of gun violence? And what can we do about it? 
I've been speaking with David Jolly. He's a former U.S. representative, former Republican from the Tampa Bay area. Thanks so much, David. Hey, thank you, Matthew. Good to be with you. That's our show for this week. Next Tuesday from 7 p.m., join us for live special coverage of the 2022 midterm elections. I'll be joined by political analyst William March and we'll check in with reporters covering races around the state. You can find us online at wusfnews.org or via Facebook or Twitter. Search for Florida Matters. Denora Prevost is our producer. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.